good evening. I'd like to welcome you all to this Forum for European Philosophy event at the London School of Economics. So for those of you who don't know, the Forum is an educational charity which aims to bring philosophy to a wider audience, and you can find out about us on our website. So my name's Danielle Sands, and I'm a fellow at the Forum, and I'm going to be chairing this evening's event, um, in which our four speakers um, will debate the motion, This House Believes We Should Leave the European Union. So let me introduce our participants. Um, so for the motion, economist and writer Jared Lyons, who is currently Chief Economic Advisor to the Mayor of London. Ben Cobley, who is a journalist, writer and political blogger. And against the motion, Hugo Dixon, who is a columnist and writer and the Chairman and Editor-in-Chief of InFacts. And Katrin Flickstrom, who is Professor of Political Theory here at the LSE. So here's the format. So each speaker will have about seven minutes to state their position. And then there'll be about eight minutes um, in which the two opposing speakers will, will state a challenge um, to their speaker. So this, this will take about an hour, I think. And hopefully that will give us about 30 minutes um, for questions for the audience. And it will be you, the audience, who decide whether or not the motion is carried. Um, so I just want to start by asking you about your current positions um, just out of curiosity, who at this stage is in favour of the motion, this House believes we should leave the European Union? Perhaps you should like to raise your hands. Thanks, Hugo. And those of you who are against the motion, this House believes we should leave the European Union? Okay, so more of you. And what about any undecideds, anyone who's yet to make up their mind? Okay, so you have potential to, to convert some, some people here. Okay, so I'll hand over to our first speaker, who is Jared Lyons. Good evening. It's a great pleasure, great honour to be here this evening. Should we leave the European Union? The answer is undoubtedly yes. I think the key factor is that this is a sovereignty issue, it's a political issue, it's about restoring our democracy. In fact, of the 28 countries in the European Union, I would say all other 27 view this issue primarily from a political perspective. So even Greece, despite five years of depression, even Greece with the opportunity to leave the euro decided not to. Yet here in the UK, we've always tended to view this from an economic and financial perspective. But it's important to stress this is primarily a political project. And it's like walking the wrong way on an escalator. Not that anyone sensible has ever probably tried to walk the wrong way on an escalator. But politically, the European Union is like an escalator going in the opposite direction to the one that's necessary for people to control their own destiny and to control their own political future. But for this evening, for the next six minutes, I'm going to focus on the economic and financial issues. And these can be split into two. One, the reasons why we must leave the European Union and second, the benefits we would get from controlling our own destiny. Now, it has to be said, the European Union has worked well in parts. I'm on an advisory board here at the LSE, the Grantham Institute, and in terms of the environment, the European Union has done well. Certain issues do basically work well on the regional basis. Also, the European Union, in terms of time, tended to work well probably up until the Maastricht Treaty. So here we are, you might ask, 43 years after we joined... We seem as a country to be doing okay. Living standards are all right. Why bother leaving now? And the reality is that in the last decade, 
Just as the political escalator is going in the wrong direction, the economic escalator is also now, in terms of Europe, going in the wrong direction. Over the last decade, globalization, technical change, innovation have basically removed economic borders. You can trade instantly, you can communicate rapidly with people the other side of the world. But while that's happening, the European Union has become centralizing, controlling, regulating, moving in the wrong direction. But in the global environment in which we are now in, the countries that will do well will be those that are adaptable, flexible, and that can control their own destiny. In fact, the big challenge with the European Union is that it never, 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 never addresses any of its problems. Maybe that's not a surprise. It's got 28 countries. They all have their vested interests. They never let anything sensible be decided. It's always about the lowest common denominator. What are the problems? Youth unemployment. One in two young people in Greece, one in four young people in Spain. I was debating this with Ken Clark in Ireland the other week. I was told that 23% of qualified people under 25 in Ireland have emigrated. What sort of region is that where young people don't have jobs or have to move to other parts of the world to look for them? Migration. It's not addressed the migration problem. It certainly has not addressed the depression in Greece problem. The challenge, of course, is it's likely to get worse. Despite the bounce we're seeing in the Eurozone at the moment and in the European Union at the moment in terms of economic growth, the reality is that every major economic forecaster has the European Union as the slow-growth region of the world economy. Why would we want to tie ourselves to that? Moreover, it will get worse because it has to become more centralizing, more controlling, more regulating, because at its core is the Eurozone. The Eurozone is probably the most ridiculous economic idea ever thought up anywhere. Even Ken Clark, speaking with me on Monday in the debate, was saying that initially the idea was you had to meet the economic criteria. But because this is a political project, it was all watered down, and quite frankly, any country that wanted to was allowed to join. Of course, we're not in the euro, but we can't escape from it in the sense that if we're in the European Union, more and more of everything within it is going to be dictated by ensuring the eurozone stays together. And that means it has to become a political union. That means it has to centralize further. So overall, I think that the reasons to leave are clear. And anyone, even on the Remain side, when they talk about the positives for the European Union, is all based on this virtual reality world of a union that's always going to reform, yet, as we've seen in the past, it rarely ever reforms. So the choice is between staying in that unreformed EU that has to centralize further to keep the Eurozone together, or breaking free, controlling our own destiny. And there are a few benefits, quite a few. Borders. Migration is good for an economy, but anyone who's done economics will know that you need to have a limit on migration. The way it works in the European Union is that we let anyone in from the rest of the EU who wants to come here and we discriminate consequently against people from the rest of the world, from India, from China, from the Commonwealth. We need to control our borders, we need to have migration, but we need to have a limit on migration. Trade. Gosh, I'm coming to the LSE. I'm sure I need economists here, no Harry Johnson, the icons of 20th century economics. He would have told you, one of the evils in trade economics is a customs union. And the European Union is a customs union. That means around the outside of it, it has a tariff wall. And the tariff walls within the European Union have been there to protect two areas. Agriculture because of France, 
industry or manufacturing because of Germany. Customs unions, according to Harry Johnson, who used to teach here, or indeed anyone who teaches trade theory, customs unions are against the consumer and they protect. They protect those areas behind the tariff wall. Agricultural tariffs mean that African farmers, Caribbean sugar producers trying to sell into Europe have not been able to because of that tariff barrier. If we were to leave, we would suddenly face cheaper food prices, cheaper agricultural prices. If we were to leave, auto producers would face a tariff of between 5 to 10%. But overall, the good thing is because of world trade organization and globalization, tariffs generally have come down. Maybe the final couple points are the city. The city will remain the financial center of Europe, in or out. But if we stay in, we're going to be, continue to face an uphill battle as the European Court of Justice continues to dictate things and we didn't get a veto from the Eurozone in our negotiation. But above all, in the last 15 seconds, it's to say it's a political project, but in economic terms, we have our ability to pull ourselves away from something that doesn't work and we have the ability to control our own destiny in the future. Thank you. Spot on with your timing there. Thank you. Um, okay, should we take the challenge from the other side? Okay, I'll start um, with just a challenge. It strikes me um, that the argument that you make for um, leaving um, is really quite a negative one. You tell us a lot about everything that's wrong with the EU and that's not working with the EU. It seems to me that um, for us to have a more confidence about Britain leaving, we would like to hear a bit more about what Britain would do and what Britain could do once it is out, outside the, um, the EU. So I wonder whether you could elaborate a little bit more in terms of positive points, uh, how precisely uh, you would uh, make uh, use of the challenges that the global market apparently and the opportunities that it offers and that you cannot at the moment avail yourselves of given that, uh, that the EU constrains you. So something more positive from the exit. Uh, yes, uh, Gerard, uh, my, my question um, for you is um, you talk about the problems of the Eurozone. You explain, of course, that Britain is not in the Eurozone. You tell us about the unemployed people, the youth unemployed in Greece. And, of course, um, we are, at least you and I, we both travel to Greece quite a lot. We know about the terrible unemployment in Greece. Um, but how... Does Britain leaving the EU help the unemployed people of Greece? And is it because you actually think that by Britain leaving, because there are people on your side of the argument who hope that if Britain leaves the EU, the whole EU itself will collapse? Is that your ultimate agenda? Okay. All right. That last one was a strange question, I thought. Um, the positives. Um, look, I think this is a choice between a global Britain versus an inward-looking insular European Union. This is a choice about Britain recognizing that the balance of economic power is shifting from the west to the east. The balance of economic power is about the Indo-Pacific region of the world, India, China, the United States. It's about recognizing that the European Union doesn't address its problems and continues to be the slow-growth region. So we need to be thinking globally. What it also means is the fact that when you look at the economic analysis, there is naturally always a shock in any change, whether you change house, change university, change jobs, as you'll find in the future. When I did detailed analysis a couple of years ago, 
uh, for the Mayor of London, we had independent outside forecasters, and I asked them to look at what happens over a couple of economic cycles. And the choice is really between not just being in or out, but between what you do if you're in and what you do if you're out. Given that the European Union is not a reforming union, the choice is really about staying in an unreformed EU versus being outside and being global. What does that mean? What it means in economic terms is stronger growth, stronger innovation, more productivity growth, because we start to actually position ourselves globally. The analysis we did with Volterra, etc., over a 20-year period taking London as an economy, we found that the UK global outside generated four and a half times as many jobs as being in an unreformed EU, constrained by the problems within the EU. In terms of um, being outside, I should also list that a number of things that Britain will still be a member of in terms of controlling our own destiny. We'll still be a member of the G7, the G20, NATO, the United Nations Security Council. The OECD will still play a driving force in that, that determines economic issues. In terms of the city, it's the Financial Stability Board. We still will be playing a key role on that. Five Eyes Group that determines defence and security. IMF World Bank. And also we would regain our seat on the World Trade Organization. And that leads on to the real big positives. It's about being outside and being able to recognise that you don't need a trade deal to trade. We trade with 70% of the world without trade deals. If you go into any shop in the country, you find, pick up any item, it says made in China. Do we have a trade deal with China? No. What we actually have is the flexibility to play to our strengths. And this is particularly evident in terms of the city. There's this idea that if we were to remain in the EU, the city is safe. I certainly think the city will be the competitive centre of Europe in financial terms. But 17 years ago, when we were debating here whether to join the euro, when we were told that if we didn't join the euro, Britain would be doomed forever, when we were told by the Remain side that the city in particular would lose out. Then the competition was Amsterdam, Frankfurt or Paris to the city of London. And the key thing, coming back to the question, is about the fact that we need to be positioning ourselves with where our competition is. The big competitive financial centres now are global. It's about New York, Singapore, Hong Kong. So the real issue is about the ability to control our own destiny and recognise that the opportunities are global and the competition is global. And we really need to be gearing ourselves to remain good friends with the EU, but to actually be thinking very much on the global terms. Coming on to Hugo's question about Greece, um, British, in, British economists or British policymakers can't determine Greece. I was debating Greece with Varoufakis, the former finance minister, on the radio the other week. And he basically said, the European Union, terrible, terrible. I couldn't have said it better. Then he said, we had to stay in the euro. And I thought, why did you have to stay in the euro? Greece has the ability to actually, if it wanted to, leave the euro. What I think we would find is that Britain leaving, Britain doing well, will probably be a bullet or bomb up the, whatever, up the backsides of the EU to actually spur them into action. It's really only if someone starts to really outperform and compete that others will think we want a slice of that. And what was most disappointing over the last year in terms of the Prime Minister's renegotiation is not only the fact that there were very few takers on the continent, but the way it was really pitched. This was a real opportunity to basically think about the need for the European Union to reform. I'm on the advisory board of Open Europe, which is one of the pro-EU think tanks. And it basically says a reformed EU would be ideal if the EU could reform. What you find is that Eastern European countries 
talk about how their agricultural sectors have been undermined by the common agricultural policy, how their industrial sectors have been undermined by the competitiveness of the German manufacturing sector. Hence, it's no surprise skilled workers from Eastern Europe come to the UK looking for jobs. What you might find is that more countries around the periphery of Europe might actually decide to follow in our footsteps and align themselves with the UK. I think we can be a force for good. Of course, one has to recognise if Britain were to leave, the European Union loses its third biggest financial contributor, hence we make a big financial saving. It loses its second biggest economy. It loses its most liberal economy in many respects. It uses, loses half of its defence capability, capability and consequently half of its military expeditionary capability. So the European Union would be severely wounded, but clearly the whole idea of us leaving is not to wound the European Union. It's about looking after people here in Britain, looking after the benefits of the UK economy, trying to position the fifth biggest economy in the world, the UK, for future success, and in the process boosting workers' rights, which are enshrined in UK law, and making sure that we actually position the UK economy and hopefully provide the spur for others within the EU to follow us in the future. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, I'd like to hand over to our next speaker, Hugo Dixon. Uh, thank you, Danielle. Uh, just, uh, I don't feel really that Gerard answered those questions. At least, um, I don't feel he answered Katrine's question. He said we could position ourselves globally. Um, there's nothing to stop us positioning ourselves globally at the moment while being in the EU. We can have our cake and eat it. Um, and normally... Um, people on his side, what they do is they talk about the benefits of deregulation, and I'm pretty sure that that was actually what was contained in Gerard's report that he did for the Mayor of London. I he didn't he talk about deregulation at all. Oh, he didn't. Okay. In fact, the UK is the most liberal labour market and the second least regulated. Right. Well, I'm market. very glad so, that we've got that yeah. admitted that there is no benefit for us in deregulating. I didn't say thank no you benefit, very so much. <laughs> thank, thank you very much. So there we go. I stress that the report didn't focus on... Reg I'm happy for you to actually address it. If you well, could save your challenge yeah, until well, after you to actually stick to the facts. I hope you'll give me an extra minute after this interruption. Ten seconds. Um, the, then, then I think he did sort of answer my question. He said he wanted to put a bomb up the backside of the EU. So I think that means he wants to blow the EU, EU up. Well, I think that that would create chaos for us economically. It would also divide us in Europe at a time when there is great danger in our neighborhood, when we need to stand together against Putin, where we need to stabilize our continent at a time when the Middle East and North Africa is in turmoil. Um, I've lost my... Oh, there we are, 54. Um, so just coming on to my case, I mean, I, first of all, I want to make a brief positive case. Um, this is the Forum for European Philosophy, so I'm going to be a tiny bit um, philosophical, uh, not very philosophical, um, but the vision for the EU is actually set out in the treaties and in the preamble, and it is an extremely good vision. It is a vision of peace, democracy, rule of law, prosperity, security, 
and a principled foreign policy. That is the vision. I would put my hand on my heart. I would say this is a wonderful vision. Then, of course, we have to look at the reality. And we have to admit that the reality does not match up to the vision in every respect. But it does in some. We do have peace in Europe, and we have had peace in Europe since 1945. Let us not forget that. We also basically have democracy, rule of law. Um, on the prosperity front and on the security front, particularly with the rise of jihadism, there is a gap. But we also must remember that the two most troubled areas of the EU are the Eurozone and the Schengen area. And Britain is not in either and cannot be forced to join either and has no intention of joining either. But the other key pillars the single market and foreign policy and security are things that we are in. They are things that we have a capacity to play a leadership role in. We are the second largest economy. We are probably the most important military and diplomatic power. And if we vote to stay in, we can get stuck in and we can make a big difference in closing the gap on those two areas where we are involved. Now, I have to look, though, at the dangers of leaving. In the short run, there will be political turmoil. Gerard's boss, Boris, a great friend of mine, will probably become prime minister. Michael Gove will probably be chancellor of the Exchequer. There's a high chance that the uncertainty caused by our Brexit, what Gerard even himself admits is a shock, would cause a recession. The OECD, which Gerard mentioned we would still be a member of, has today forecast that the economy will be hit 3% by 2020. Also, the divorce will be an acrimonious one, particularly if Michael Gove has anything to do with it. Two minutes left. Earlier this week, he wrote in the Times that he wanted to blackmail the EU to agreeing the terms of our divorce. Well, the last person who tried to blackmail the EU was Gerard's friend, Mr. Varoufakis, and we saw where that got the Greek people. In the longer term, what sort of deal would we get? Well, in the old days, they used to talk about Norway, and they discovered that wasn't any good. Then they started talking about Switzerland, and they discovered that wasn't any good. Then Boris started talking about Canada. Well, that wasn't very good. And Michael Gove has now said, we should be like Albania. <laughs> Other people say, we'll run to America. Well, President Obama was here last week, and he said we would be at the back of the queue. Some people, of course, hoped that Donald Trump will be in the White House. Well, I don't. <laughs> and some people dream of the Commonwealth. Well, Nigel Farage insulted Barack Obama last week, saying he was part Kenyan, half Kenyan. Well, I mean, come on. Do we really think that the Commonwealth is going to rally around us when we're insulting some of their members? I think not. Do I have 30 seconds? Yes. Last 30 seconds 
is that many people on Gerard's side of the argument are very economical with the truth. They have been saying again and again that we send £350 million a week to Brussels. We do not. Okay, Ben and Jared, now is your time to challenge. Okay, very good. Uh, wait, it's good to hear you speak for seven minutes without really citing many positives of the European Union. So I thought for a moment you were actually on our side of the motion. But given that you got a round of applause um, earlier when you mentioned Africa, etc., I thought given that the European Union really does discriminate against African farmers and against Caribbean sugar producers through its exorbitant tariff, particularly because the common agricultural policy, which accounted for 75% of EU spending 25 years ago, but now accounts for 39% of its spending. Given that, and also given that the EU does not provide enough jobs for its own people, where is the benefit for the average worker within the EU from remaining in the EU and why do you think that the EU does not play a more global role benefiting people in the third world, such as Africa and the Caribbean, given that this is the area that you started off on and where you got the round of applause? And the second question. Uh, my question is on um, Eurozone integration. I mean, you, you mentioned briefly the Eurozone. We're not in the Eurozone, as if it doesn't matter to Britain being in the EU. Now... I'm just wondering, I mean, how can the euro possibly work without some sort of serious fiscal, political integration down the line? I mean, they already have a president for the eurozone now. Now, that can only gain in importance over time. And, and as they put together those structures to integrate, it's going to be, you know, basically an EU within an EU um, with a lot of money involved. How on earth can that not marginalise Britain in the EU? Okay. Um, well, um, I think Gerard really asked me about two questions. One was African farmers and benefits to EU workers. Um, so the African farmers, um, well, first thing that um, he mentioned was the common agricultural policy has actually fallen as a percentage of the EU budget. It is still too large in my view, at 39%. But as he said, it was 75%. And one of the reasons it's come down is because Britain has been pushing year after year for it to come down. If we're still part of the EU, we can continue to push for it to come down year after year. If we leave the EU, we will have no influence over that common agricultural policy. Um, Boris Johnson I don't know if he takes advice from Gerard or not about these matters, but a few weeks ago he was in front of the Treasury Select Committee and he was asked about farmers and he said that he wanted to maintain the subsidies that we give to farmers in perpetuity at the current level. And he even hinted he might want to push them up. Secondly, he said he wanted our farmers to still have access to the EU market without tariffs, there is no way that they would let us have access to their market without tariffs unless we imposed 
exactly the same tariffs as they do. So, in, in effect, what Boris Johnson is saying is that he would like to keep this common agricultural policy, but without any influence on it. That seems to me to be a very retrograde step. Now, as far as the benefits to EU workers are concerned, um, I think we have to distinguish between the troubles of the Eurozone, and I'm not going to try and defend that, and the um, general prosperity that the single market has created, which is good for EU workers. There are also certain workers' rights that are underpinned by the EU, such as the Working Time Directive, such as the directive that looks after temporary workers and gives them rights, such as rights for maternity and paternity pay and leave. As far as um, Ben's um, point about Eurozone integration, I do accept that it is conventional wisdom that the Eurozone needs to have political and fiscal union. However, I have been arguing for years that this is neither desirable, necessary, or likely to take place. And if I just give you an example of why it's unlikely to take place, it's because of the rise of Euroscepticism. It's not just Britain that has people like Gerard and Ben in their ranks. There are people like Marine Le Pen in France. There is um, Beppe Grillo in Italy. There is the alternative for Deutschland in Germany, the Finns, the Gerd Wilders in Holland, etc., etc., etc. There is no way that they are going to agree to hand over a huge amount of power to a centralized treasury and finance minister in Brussels. But as I say, I don't think it's actually needed, and the solution to the Eurozone's problems is at least part about boosting the productivity of the Eurozone. And the way to boost the productivity of the Eurozone, among other things, is to make their economies more competitive. And among other things, the way to do that is to complete Europe's single market, which is currently optimized for manufactured goods, where Britain excels is in services. And if we can complete the single market in services, which is indeed on the agenda for the European Commission and was given further impetus in Cameron's renegotiation, proving a lie to the argument that Europe never reforms, then that will not only benefit the Eurozone, it will also benefit Britain big time too. Early. <laughs> Thanks, Hugo. Our next speaker is Ben Cobley. Uh, hello, everyone. Um, now, Hugo's just been describing basically anyone who's a, a Eurosceptic. Uh, or, you know, sort of in favour of this motion, as some sort of extremist, uh, even a fascist, you know, Marine Le Pen, uh, Michael Gove is going to go and sort of uh, light a bomb in, under Europe. Now, myself, I mean, I've, I've actually always been a pro-European. Um, I'm even in favour of the EU, you know, as an idea, uh, as an idea, but not the idea that we've got now. Um, but on balance, I think we should leave. Um, and it's a, it's a political decision. I'm not 100%. I'm, I'm probably 80-20, 70-30, but 
it's, it's the side I've come down on. Now, why? Um, I think, um, I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of issues here um, that we can't, you know, debate all in one unless we rush through them. So I'm going to focus on, on one core one, which I think is, is probably the most important, which is um, the borders and citizenship. Um, now, I think it's surely fundamental um, to any, any nation state um, the meaning of a nation state is that it controls its borders and who can come in, who can live, work, um, and, and own property as well. Now, under the EU, we, we in Britain, as a democratic society, as a political community, we don't, we don't control that anymore. And we've, we've got to admit that that's, that's, that's what the EU means to us. Um, when when um, David Cameron went for his renegotiation, he, he, he had a mandate from the British people to... Um, you may agree with it or not, but to limit migrant in-work benefits. He went, he went to the EU, 27 other leaders said, no, you can't do that. He came back. That's who he's answerable to. He's not answerable to the British people. Now, whether you, you agree with that or not, you must agree that that's um, a re reduction of democracy, a very important one too. Um, now, um, Britain, as, as we are, is actually a very a relatively small and crowded country. Um, but we're open to pretty much unlimited, really, population growth. And we, we've seen that, you know, recently in the last 20 years or so. Um, now, England is where, the, where most migrants come to live and work. Um, but now it's the most crowded country in Europe. Um, and we can see this all around us with building of, of roads and houses, all sorts of schools. Um, I'm, I'm a governor of a school myself. We've, we've expanded. We've doubled, doubled in size but if, if this goes on, it's going to create serious problems um, because we haven't got any more space. We're going to have to buy property. Can you speak up again? Oh, sorry, yes. I oh, should speak up. Um, now, um, now, this population growth is actually good for a lot of people. Um, it, it creates a booming housing market. Um, even the tax receipts from lots of property being exchanged all the time, it creates money for, for the exchequer. Um, but of course it's not good for anyone for everyone rather um, a lot of people are being priced out of living where they've grown up um, you know where their friends and family are they now have to move um, and that's no fault of people coming in but it's just the dynamic that we have of population growth um, now let's see um, now, I think, I mean, I'm from the left, from, from the liberal left, but I think a lot of us are in complete denial about this and about, especially for poorer people, the effects on them, not just in jobs, but in, in, terms, of, in terms of property and housing. Um, but, but overall, I think this, this exemplifies the lack of control that we have in the EU um, and the way that the character of politics is contributing to it being in the EU rather than being the cause um, that it's something that, that is done to us. It's something that happens without our control, that we, we really have no say over. So, I mean, why actually bother voting, you know, if, if your vote does not really change anything fundamental? The political parties are just fiddling around with a few things. Um, now, I think something close to my heart as well. I mean, Gerard mentioned um, the environment, something that the, the EU has been good at is coordinating on the environment. I'd, I'd agree with that completely. But, but for us, population growth means we're continually expanding into our environment. We, you know, like I say, we're a very small country. Um, 
and you, and you can see the building going on everywhere. Um, basically, the green and pleasant land is becoming progressively less green and more cramped. And, and that's qu a quality of life issue, and it's very important. Now, leaving the EU will not solve these problems at all. You know, it, it will not, not save anything. I mean, there will be no actual change when we leave the EU. It depends on two minutes. the... Two minutes. It depends on who we elect. So we basically, leaving the EU will give us the ability to make a difference on these things, but there's no, there's no guarantee. Um, so it will make politics and democracy more meaningful, bring back essential political questions to the, to the electorate and the people we elect. Um, now, if, if we're going to do anything about these things, we have to leave the EU. It's a shame. I, I feel sorry about it, but I feel strongly, too, that it's, it's the right choice. Um, now, for ceding control of, of, of these and many other issues, like through the Commission and, and the ECJ, um, we pay £250 million a week to the EU. That's £480 a year per household. That's not a small amount of money. Um, on the other side, I mean, I think the most, most convincing argument on the other side is Britain losing influence in the world, and, you know, there was a round of applause for that. And I think that there is definitely some truth in that. Um, and I think that, that really comes down to what this referendum is maybe all about, which is uh, a choice between having control over our own country or having a share, maybe you could say a 28th, I'd say more like an eighth or up to a fifth of a share over other people's countries. And, I mean, that's nice, and, and we can influence the Europeans and their foreign policy, but we can, we can influence them anyway, as far as I see it. So that's the choice. Thank you. Okay, so over to Hugo and Katrin for their challenges. So I really just um, have one brief question, which is I'm somewhat puzzled, I suppose, um, by the argument for closed borders and the simultaneous argument for making use of the global opportunities of the global market. Um, so you've just now made a strong argument for, you know, controlling our own destiny or Britain controlling its or her own destiny in terms of closing the borders. Um, your co-speaker made a strong argument um, uh, for Britain going it alone in terms of availing itself of the opportunities of the open market. Now, um, my guess would be that if you want to avail yourself of the opportunities of the open market, your borders had better be pretty open. If, on the other hand, you want to be behind closed borders, it's not clear to me that you can easily avail yourself of these opportunities, whatever you think they're out there. So can you square the circle for me? Um, yes. Uh, I have a question. I, um, I, I, first of all, I think it's fantastic you've used the correct figure for how much money we send. 200, 250 million, not 350 million. I wish that most of the campaigners would use that. Um, but do you accept that that is a gross figure, the amount that goes to Brussels, and that about half of that comes back to Britain? And do you also accept that, that the net amount that we send amounts to about 1% of what the British government pays 
each year. You talked about households, but if you look at it on a, on a, on a, on a, on a per-person basis, it is 26 pence per person per day. I think that when you start talking about millions, people often think, oh, that's a lot of money. Um, 26 p- person, pence per person per day. And would you... I don't know if you, you're listening to me or, or Gerard anyway, but um, the same time. You, you've got two ears. That's wonderful. Um, and would you, accept, would, you, would, you, would you accept that if the um, respected economic forecasters out there, including the OECD that your partner mentioned, is correct, and that Britain will suffer a shock, as Gerard says, but in the OECD's um, estimate, 3% of GDP that that will then cause a decline in the taxes that we receive, which will more than wipe out any benefit from any money that we're not sending to Brussels, so that rather than having more money for things like the NHS and schools, we will have less money. Uh, Thanks for the questions. Uh, I hope you can hear me. now, firstly, from, from Catherine on, on the closed borders argument, I, I never mentioned closed borders. I, I, I do not believe in it. I, we will have immigration, whatever happens. Um, uh, the, the crucial point, I would say, is I'll, I'll go back to the democracy point, that you vote for a government, and they, they will decide what the policy is, and they will have to be open, well, as much as politicians are, but they will have to be more open and honest about that policy than, than they are now. Um, so, I mean, closed borders, I think that's, it's, it's a piece of rhetoric, to be honest. Um, I, I don't think it has much relevance. Um, the, the point of versus global opportunities and market, yes, I mean, sure, uh, they, the more, when you limit who can come in, sure, not, not so much will happen, but economic activity is related to population. The more people you have, the more is consumed, the more is, pro- is produced. And that's fine, but my argument was it's for democratic control about our destiny, um, about how large we would like the population to be. Um, so that's the core, the core point there. Um, now on Hugo's... Uh, point about the 250 million gross. Um, Again, I mean, sorry maybe for being a bit of a broken record, it it depends on who we elect, uh, you know, what what they spend it on. Um, Now, with the EU, they decide where the money that comes back goes to. And it's not half comes back. I think it's uh, in 2015, it was 13 billion gross we, we spent. And then it was... I think 8, 8.5 net after, after everything came back. Now, what comes back is a bit of regional spending, um, but also the common agricultural policy, which we've talked about here already, and that is paying money to rich landowners to sit on their land, which, you know, it's very nice, and, and we want to, you know, keep farmers, you know, in, in clothes and food and everything. But, you know, the Duke of Westminster gets 750000 a year from the EU, Surely, if that came back here, we could go, well, hang on, does he really need that? At the EU, it's all one size fits all. Um, so I think that's it. Yeah, we, the important thing is that we decide, and, and uh, yeah, that's me done. Thank you.
like to hand over to our final speaker, Katrin Flickshu. Thanks. So I won't be voting in the referendum because I'm not British. So, um, in fact, I'm German, so I'm from the dark side, as it were. Um, but having said that, I've lived in this country for, um, oh, I don't know how many years, since 1981. I also um, have a sort of saving grace on my family side. My mother's English. So I, although I grew up in, in Germany, I, um, I, have a, I have an English mother. Um, my parents met just after the war and, and uh, married there. So uh, this, is a, this is a European success story, I suppose. But um, I'm also not someone who is very conversant at all with, uh, with EU politics, I have to say. I'm a political theorist, and within that I work on... Um, uh, fairly abstract um, questions to do with uh, the philosophy of Immanuel Kant. Uh, I suspect I might have been asked on this panel because there is an association between Kant's cosmopolitanism and EU goals and objectives as, as uh, that Hugo has reminded me of. Um, but I don't want to bore you with any Kantian wisdoms to that effect here. Um, I really um, want to focus on one point, and, and this is something that I'm actually quite puzzled about with regard to the, to the Brexit campaign, and that's the notion of sovereignty that's often invoked. And I find that notion uh, quite puzzling as it's employed, or seems to me to be employed in a lot of the Brexit um, arguments um, for exit. One often hears from uh, uh, the Brexit campaigners that if Britain leaves, then Britain can make its own decisions again. Um, so I take it that that is what, uh, what uh, the Brexit um, uh, campaigners mean by sovereignty, that if you, if you uh, uh, are sovereign, you are someone who can control their own destiny, who can make their own decisions, and who doesn't have anyone telling them what to do. And I think the attitude of Britain within the EU has always been a little bit like you are compromising our sovereignty, um, uh, and uh, the EU is dictating to us what to do, and Britain has to comply. I think the attitude of most uh, other EU members is more one uh, that sees uh, the uh, member states as making, as sovereign states, decisions together that affect their, uh, that affect their common destiny. So what puzzles me a little bit is this, fa uh, this fixation on sovereignty as equating to doing what we um, want to do or doing uh, what we decide to do or doing um, what is good for us. Because it doesn't see, it's not clear to me that this is really what sovereignty is necessarily all about, state sovereignty is necessarily all about. So I'm, I'm puzzled about where that comes from in the Brexit campaign. Um, it's also often said by the Brexit campaigners that we want to be sovereign, or Britain wants to be sovereign again. So that's a reference to once we were sovereign and we want to get back to that point. And so what I really am wondering about is where is that reference point? What is the historical reference point? When was Britain sovereign in the way in which uh, the Brexit campaigners want Britain to be sovereign again? And I'm genuinely not sure, because if you look at Britain's recent past, Britain was an empire. It wasn't a sovereign state. In fact, it was an empire, and before that, it was another empire. And before that, at least parts of Britain think that the English uh, behaved in, a, in an imperial fashion towards the other parts of Britain. So, so Britain has for a long, long time been, been an empire. Um, it had first the North Atlantic uh, possessions and later, of course, the possessions in Africa and, um, and Asia. 
So it hasn't really in the past acted as a sovereign state. It has acted more as an empire, and that's just as a, as a, as a matter of his, historical fact. And you might, of course, say that, well, an empire is the most sovereign of all states. I'm not so sure about that, because I think it's part of the concept of sovereignty that it is self-limiting. So uh, a sovereign state is a, is a state that... Um, that, uh, that insists on its own capacity to, to conduct its, uh, its own affairs and that basically is, uh, is, is powerful towards those that are subject to it and that can keep those who are not subject to it out, um, out of the door. So there is a sense in which a sovereign agent controls its own uh, affairs, but there's also a sense in which a sovereign agent is dependent on other sovereign agents being around with whom it can interact. And I think the the Brexit notion of sovereignty seems to me in many instances to remain closer tied to Britain's imperial past. And the point that I want to make here is that it's not at all clear to me that that's an option for the future. Um, Britain is no longer an empire. Britain now is indeed a sovereign state. Um, but that might mean that, that Britain as a sovereign state is precisely not going to be able to say um, – we will just um, be able to do as we please, it, this, it, it is going to be a negotiated affair with other sovereign states. It seems to me that the reference to the Commonwealth, for instance, well, the Commonwealth now is a collection of sovereign states, which Britain will have to engage with on the, on the basis of sovereignty. Sovereignty will have to be negotiated based on and negotiations and, and treaties. So I am just very puzzled by the fixation on Britain was once a sovereign power and wants to be a sovereign power again. It seems to me that that is debatable. It seems to me that Britain is arguably better off as a sovereign state, um, engaging in negotiation, common negotiation, um, and commonly churned out agreements with other sovereign states, such as members of the, United Na uh, the, the, the Euro European Union. And here I think that Britain has in many ways played far too passive a role in the past, and I would urge for Britain to take a much more active role in shaping, as Hugo was saying, in shaping um, common EU policy, rather than always um, feeling that it is um, at the mercy of EU policies which it could have helped shape much more than it actually wants to do. So my, my um, plea would be that if Britain wants to be sovereign, um, better stay in the EU. Questions from Gerard and Ben. Uh, hi there, hi there, Catherine. Um, yes, on, the, on this question of, of sovereignty, um, I mean, you're arguing that uh, I think it's your argument, not Brexit campaign. There's maybe a few sort of fringe crazies that Britain's going to go back to some sort of imperial past. I, I don't believe that, do you? I, I mean, who, who is actually arguing this? Um, uh, I mean, we're not arguing about going back. We're arguing about going forward, you know, making a political decision and, and where it takes us, it takes us. Uh, now, you were, you were asking, like, when was Britain sovereign? I mean, you know, the sovereignty question is, I mean, a bit difficult, but I would say it depends on the people and the people, you know, having rule. And I would, I would 
draw a line there at 1928 when the last women got the vote. So, I mean, in, in those terms, I would say Brit British people have been sovereign, you know, give or take the EU, for less than 100 years. And I find it really sad that we're, we're prepared to trade that away for, I, I don't really know quite what with the EU. It seems to be quite an idealistic but going nowhere, sort of, you know, sort of a dreamy state. I mean, that no one can really point to what the EU is so good at. Um, so, so I think, I think that's basically my, my point. I mean, we've been a democracy for less than 100 years. Uh, why not continue with it and, you know, th with this great experiment and see where we go with it? Um, thanks. Yeah, thanks for your interesting analysis. Um, my question links into it and onto it in the sense that it comes back to the democracy issue. I, I want to get the idea of how you kept talking about sovereignty, but if we bring it up to the here and now, um, Britain is probably the most liberal democracy in the Western world. We have, uh, you kept harking back to the empire. There was lots of positives about the empire as well as negatives. But most people are quite proud of Britain's history. Um, obviously, lots of people in the audience don't agree. Uh, but I, what I'd like to know is that if you're an average person or any person in the UK, at the moment, uh, you do not have the ability to vote to get rid of the commission, the European Council, the European president, but we do have a say in the European Parliament, but we're one of 28. Our representation is quite small. So when you think of that power block that runs the EU, that doesn't seem very democratic in terms of a person's control here in the UK. But it's very much reinforcing what Ben said. At least whatever you think about Mr Cameron or Jerry Corbyn, whoever, at least we have the ability to kick them out of power. And I'd like to be interesting to get your analysis moving on from sovereignty to the democracy issue, because that would seem to me the key issue that people are linking it to. Thank you. Thank you. Um, the, the, both questions, I think, are actually very good. I, I, don't, I don't think that Britain, uh, I don't think that Britain or Brexit wants to resurrect the, uh, its imperial past. Obviously not. Um, I think my point was much more that um, uh, Brexit campaigners often seem to think that EU has deprived it of a, or has, has deprived Britain of a sovereignty that it previously had. And this raises in my mind then the question, well, when did it have that sovereignty? And the point that I was making is it can't have been when Britain was an imperial power because one doesn't normally associate empire and sovereignty. That's not really an association that one would make precisely because empire is not self-limiting in the sense in which sovereignty is meant to be. But this is, of course, not to say that uh, I'm suggesting that the Brexit campaigners are wanting to resurrect uh, 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 imperial Britain. The point was rather that it is not clear to me whether Brexit campaigners know what they mean when they invoke the concept of sovereignty, i.e. know what they mean when they say, once we were sovereign and, and the EU has deprived us of that and we want that back, which point in, their his in Britain's history are they referring back to that gives them that idea that they have been deprived of uh, that by the, by the EU? That's the question for me, not uh, any, uh, anything to do with reviving or going back to empire. Um, so... Uh, 
And I think it's very interesting to raise in relationship to that the question of democracy. So, um, so the claim is uh, Brexit campaigners are not so much fussed about sovereignty, they're much more fussed about democracy. Now, I think that that's probably not entirely genuine. I think they're probably fussed about both. Um, uh, but uh, let me just try to say something about the democracy point. It's not again, it's not clear to me that really... Um, National democracy is much affected by um, EU politics. Uh, and I, but I think it, it depends to some extent at least on whether Britain decides to take a more active role in EU uh, policy shaping or whether it continues to sit on the sidelines and be mostly preoccupied with seeing how it can make exemptions for itself. It seems to me that we will or you will uh, continue to elect members of parliament and you will continue to elect a government just like you always have done, whether you are in the EU or not. So at the national level, it, it, it's not clear to me that really the democracy um, is affected by, uh, by EU membership. Of course, whoever you vote into government is then going to have a say or not have a say at the, at the EU level. But it seems to me that the best way in which to preserve democracy at the national level or take it forward into the EU decision-making process is for whoever gets elected by the British people to actually play a more constructive role in EU-making. Um, and there are, of course, these arguments, and I'm not, I'm not entirely sure how convinced I am by them. I'm probably not very convinced by them that the EU itself is a sort of democracy. I'm not, I'm not sure. I just know too little about this, uh, that it is a kind of democracy between states, as it were. I'm not sure about that. But I'm not, I'm, uh, as to the point about national democracy being affected, um, well, if so, then the EU is no different here from, say, the UN or, the, um, or NATO. International politics is always going to be decided by a number of players and not just by one people. Thank you. Shall we take some questions from the audience there? Gosh. First hand to shoot up. If you could wait for the microphone to come uh, before you start speaking and if you could try and keep your questions as short and focused as possible, please. Yeah, uh, I'm Irish, though my accent may have given uh, it away. Uh, I just want to say to Ben first, just briefly, because he complained, I had a very warm glow at my back when you talked about the problems of coping with the success of the British economy, expanding the schools, seeing the infrastructure expand and so forth, just like Dublin before the, before the crash. And I just want to tell you, if you think things are bad in Britain at the moment, let me assure you, you do not want to go through, Ireland went through, when the shock happened. But the reason for our dramatic recovery is a key point I want to put to you. The reason for our spectacular success in the 7% growth last year, 5% this year, really coming right back again, is because we are uniquely successful at something the United Kingdom is brilliant at, attracting foreign direct investment. And in my view, the capital city of that, of course, is London. And I, I'm shocked listening to Jared. I mean, I was, I, I was almost thought I'd catch fire in my seat. I thought you, you sounded like the economic advisor of Greenland. I mean, 
at the, at the moment, the major banks are, are making furtive secret calls to Dublin all over Europe. They're making their plans for what could happen in Brexit. They have to have their trading rooms moved, blah, blah, so that in case they lose their passports. This could be catastrophic. Investment plans even today are being put on hold because... Major multinational companies, probably the only one-way bet in the entire planet at the moment, invest in the UK, you get access to, to European question? markets. You can't look. Well, let me just frame that in a question. I mean, there, there are, I, 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 I must admit, I probably have a hundred arguments, but I'm going to just crystallise them down to one because it does keep me awake at night almost at the moment, the prospect of the European, uh, of the Europe, United Kingdom leaving the European Union. And although a small elite in Ireland might gain a lot from some of the banks moving over in the event of Brexit, but the, the key point is... We are very, very worried in Ireland because you are our biggest customer. And it's, very, it's almost ironic. You take about 50% of what we produce and the European Union takes 50% of what you, the United Kingdom produce. Although I live in London because I love London. But the, the point is... Um, no, question, question, please. All right, I apologise, Madam Chair, for going on. I've got to crystallise it very simply. Surely... <laughs> No, I will summarise the point because I do believe it, it does. Uh, <laughs> it, it, do, it does. It does. Just the point about foreign direct investment. I'll, I'll leave it at that. I mean, surely it's so self-evident in the university with the largest economics partner in the world that the United Kingdom to leave the European Union would not only put itself at a disadvantage, it could face a very, very serious shock because okay. in economics we all know Enough. confidence is key. Thank you. All right. Would you like to respond to that? Take another, okay, let's take another question and we can answer them. We've got quite a few questions. So we can yeah. Go through it time, yeah. Think, okay, there's a man in the middle there. Right, I'm, I'm interested in the proponents of staying in who seem very desperate that they want us to stay in the EU. Why do they want us to stay in the EU? Because we're probably the strongest, one of the strongest economies in the EU. But we're frustrated. It's like I've always found in life that where you have a committee, in this case of 28 different countries, but where you have committee decisions, everything takes a long time. President Obama says you'll go to the back of the queue because we're dealing with a big block, we'd rather do that. I would maintain that we have a much better opportunity to deal as an individual country... Yeah, could you try and frame this as a question, please? Yes, I will. That is, half the time how, the how do you account game. for the fact that the EU accounts have never been written off as um, being uh, uh, right and proper? They've uh, always um, been obscure as to how some of the money is spent. Um, we are much better off, I believe, by ourselves. So what arguments do you have for against... 28 countries having to decide things, whereas as a, a single country we can actually make better progress, our economy is in better shape than the EU. So why do you think that we should remain in and you say that we can uh, influence things for the rest of the EU and we're better in than out, but we've spent 40 years trying to get things improved and they haven't been improved and I maintain that we're stronger as an individual country, rather than being held back by the EU. Thank you. Okay, should we take one more question before you respond? At least one question. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
A question for the opposition. One of your arguments was that the European Union has preserved peace, um, but the counter-argument will be it's not the political structures of the European Union that have preserved peace, but the general liberalisation of trade since the Second World War. You had GATT and later the World Trade Organisation and so on, and of course a more negative factor, which is nuclear power. So how would you respond to that counter-argument? Thank you for being so brief. Um... <laughs> wants to pick up on any of those? Well, I'm happy to go with... I mean, I, I, I'd just like to say I agree that foreign direct investment would fall, and that would be bad for jobs and bad for productivity. I also think, from an Irish perspective, one of the consequences of pulling out of the EU is that we would have to restore or create a border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. And that would be particularly bad for the people of Northern Ireland and it might even undermine the peace process. Um, this, the second speaker talked about the EU accounts um, never being written off. I think he, he, he meant never being signed off. That's actually not true. It's a myth. Um, since 2007, each year, the auditors have signed off the accounts. They have made some comments about the accounts, um, but as our own, I think, uh, as the, the Auditor General or Comptroller General or whatever it is, um, said a few years ago that if he had to apply the same system that they do in the EU, he would also have to qualify the UK accounts. Um, I would agree with the third speaker that peace, um, the EU cannot claim all the credit for the peace. There are clearly other factors, um, the Cold War, mutually assured destruction, um, trade, etc. But it is striking that a continent which had been... Um, absolutely covered in blood for centuries, and particularly in the previous decades, millions and millions and millions of people dead. We have had virtually no war. And within the EU itself, no war at all. Um, I think I should deal with our Irish friend. Um, thanks, for your, thanks for your comments and questions. Um, yeah, I, I certainly agree. I mean, on foreign direct investment is a good thing. Uh, but in, in what I said, I was balancing that out and, and recognizing that it is not an absolutist position that um, FDI all the time from every source under any terms is always a good thing. Now, I mean, if, if we look at Britain, I mean, the problems that we have, some of which I mentioned, sorry to be moaning a bit, but, you know, that's, that's the case. Uh, housing is a problem. I mean, anyone who's not aware of that is, has not got their eyes open. Um, also, which comes along with the housing problem, is, uh, is the social costs. Now, if you look at the housing benefit bill um, for Britain now, it's soaring. It's been soaring for years. Um, I think last year it was £25 billion. Now, where is this coming from? It's coming mostly now. Well, it's, it's, it's going up most here in London, Cambridge, Oxford, uh, Bournemouth, Milton Keynes, all these places where the population is growing fastest and in a way you could say are most economically successful. So there is, there is certainly a balance there which, is, which has to be struck. And on the environment as well, that's, that was my other main point. I mean, I, I consider it a shame that we are concreting over the countryside. I, I like the countryside. I like going walking in it. Um, and, I mean, it, is that something we 
are going to consider in our politics at all. I think it is. It isn't really now. Yeah, um, actually, on Ireland, well, uh, the Irish economy is bouncing, but having fallen a long way, and as I mentioned in my opening statement, 23% of under 25s who are qualified for emigrating in the last few years. But maybe it's just Hugo's point, because I was in Ireland a few weeks ago with Ken Clark and speaking at an event, uh, about 350 people, and there were other people on the podium, and this issue about the border was talked about. And from the Irish side, they are of the view that they will not have to reinstate the border because Schengen applies to Ireland and the UK. Uh, also, they were talking about the Ireland likely to be given special status by the European Union if Britain were to to leave. So there are issues there. But um, in terms of London, we did a detailed report a couple of years ago, 2014. You can access it from the GLA website. It looked at basically four scenarios. We had outside independent forecasters looking at this. And the best, the two by a long way, the best two over two business cycles were being in a reformed, truly reformed European Union, making the single market work properly, particularly in services. It doesn't work um, much at all in services and also the other one that was in that category of being really good was being outside in Brexit in a very globalised world. A distant third was basically in an unreformed EU and a very distant fourth was leaving, sticking your head in the sands, being very insular but within that we looked at uh, we talked to many different sectors across the London economy. Sectors that accounted for one third of London's output and one quarter of London's jobs were very enthusiastic about being in the EU. The sectors accounting for two-thirds of London's output and the rest of the jobs were far from enthusiastic. But in terms of the impact, yeah, um, I use the analogy, I use the phrase tick or shock or Nike schwoos. I think I used that before anyone else. I don't disagree with that. But what I find is that we almost have this virtual reality debate. The inside talk about this virtual reality European Union that's all singing, all dancing, which is so different to the European Union we've all complained about and the European Union we see in front of us. At the same time, there's a danger on the Brexit side of people painting this virtual reality world of Britain the day after we leave, solving all its economic problems. I think there is a near-term adjustment. I think the adjustment cost could be minimal. It could be significant. I think it's more likely to be minimal than significant, but I agree with you. And I should say that most of the major forecasters, the last time they were as uniform in their view as this, was before the financial crisis, when they all to a T said there would be no financial crisis. And so I think we need to actually put that in perspective. I, there's a danger of things becoming self-fulfilling if everyone says it's going to not work out. But I do take on board your point about that. And just 10 seconds about the city. Um, I'll refer you to my e-book, partly because it gives me a chance to plug it. Um, um, I talk about the city in detail in that. And I think the, the risks you touch on shouldn't be ignored, but I tend to think they're more perceived risks than real risks. That is, I don't think they will materialise. But I thought you touched on some good points. Thank you. Okay, should we take some more questions then? It was actually the, the gentleman to your left. Had his hand up first. Just a couple of points, perhaps. One is that I believe strongly that we should stay in the European Union. One reason being that um, Britain is needed to counterbalance countries like Hungary, Poland, Czechoslovakia, or the Czech Republic, and Slovakia that have never really known freedom and are showing increasing signs of wishing to depart from such freedom and democracy as there is. 
And the other thing I feel also when I would ask a question about it is whether the panel or anybody, any of you, feel that it's not extremely irresponsible of Michael Gove, a very expensively educated man, to come along with such a view as he has, suggesting that um, it would be a good thing not only if Britain left the uh, European Union, but also if it broke up entirely. Now, that is not realistic in the face of what's happening with Mr. Vladimir Putin and other people in Europe and other threats and faces at the present time. Is it not an irresponsible step for uh, uh, Michael Gove or a suggestion for him to make that um, Europe would be better off broken up into freedom as he sees it? Thank you. Good evening. I'll try and keep my point very brief. One thing that really concerns me is the idea that Europe has a closed-circuit economy. Rather than taking into account um, economic looks such as ASEAN, which have had an economic growth of over 5% in China, which has had economic growth of 6%, this means that Britain has to put so much, so much effort within the EU, which has had economic growth of just under 1.5%. So if we were to gr quit Europe come in June... Wouldn't this give us more of an ability to have a more global approach in focusing on these really emerging and important markets rather than just focusing on Europe? Thank you. And let's take one more question. I've referred back to... I, I'm trying to do research on the EU. I'm not really interested in political personalities trying to sway my vote. So I'm interested in how the EU actually works. Um, I'm very interested in, in knowing to what extent is the European Council and the Commission democratic? And I refer back to Tony Benn's five questions. What power do you have? Where do you get it from? In whose interest do you exercise it? To whom are you accountable? And how can we get rid of you? Well, I'm, I'm happy. Um, the European Council uh, consists of heads of government and heads of state from each of the 28 countries. Um, uh, these are people like David Cameron, Francois Hollande, Angela Merkel, etc. They are all democratically elected. Um, the, the second question, um, if we leave the EU, um, would we grow faster um, all of the um, evidence and good projections by respectable audiences are, is that um, we will be damaged, we will possibly face a recession in the short run and be damaged in the medium term. Now, if we decided to um, take Michael Gove's idea of Albania um, and destroyed the economy um, sufficiently, I think, and completely cut off um, trade with the EU, if that's what you're suggesting, um, then maybe from that very low base we could start to grow faster. But that doesn't seem like a good idea to me. And yes, Gove was being irresponsible, saying he wants to break the whole EU up. I couldn't agree with that um, question more. Thoroughly and utterly irresponsible. And if we vote to leave he will be in an incredibly powerful position in our country. Katrin? 
I just want to uh, um, respond uh, primarily to the second uh, to the second question. Not only do I agree with Hugo uh, with regard to um, Gove's comment, but I think that the, the first couple of things that you said about uh, Britain's role as a long-standing democracy, long-standing defender of liberty in a certain sense of the term at any rate, um, I think that in many ways my feeling as a, as a European is that um, many European members of the, of the EU are perhaps often a little bit disappointed that, um, that, that Britain's um, perception of its, um, or its, its evaluation within the EU is so focused on the economic side of it and seems so little um, to um, take into account the important role that Britain, I think, can, can play in, in, in stabilizing Europe and also in sort of uh, pointing politically forward, politically now for Europe. So, so I'm, I'm very pleased to hear you make these kind of comments because I do think that Britain could have an enormously important role to play on that kind of front. Yeah, a few points. The, the very first question from the gentleman was about Eastern Europe. And I think it was a very impertinent question. It was very to the point. Um, Eastern Europe has a... One of the big positives about the European Union was the expansion to the east when countries that had come out of the former collapse of the Soviet Empire or the Russian Empire were able to come into the democracy of the West. But Eastern Europe has been badly let down. And that's why countries there are turning the way they are. What we have to recognize is the EU continues to discriminate, not just in its trade policy against, Africa, against African farmers, against others around the world. It discriminates against people within its own backyard in terms of the way its economic policy leads to such high rates of unemployment, but also the way in which the Eastern European countries were promised so much and have been delivered so little. And therefore, no one should be surprised at the way politics across the European Union is going. Now, politics in Europe would not go the way, or the European Union would not go the way it's going if the European Union was listening to its people and trying to actually change its system to deliver stronger and favourable economic growth. And I think that's the heart of the problem. Gove, I'm not sure which particular thing you're saying about Gove, but yeah, no one wants it to collapse, and I, that would be irresponsible. We want the European Union to reform and improve. But I think it links into, look, given you're all from the LSE, I'm sure you all know who Harry Johnson was. You're from the 20th century, the trade expert. But if not, you should go and look at what he used to write about. Customs unions are evil things. They discriminate against the people. They protect certain areas. And what we need to see, it's this Albanian stuff, etc. You do not need a trade deal to trade. You can trade... It's not governments who trade, it's people who trade, it's companies who trade. We don't have a trade deal with China, we don't have a trade deal with the States. Of course, if you want to have a trade deal, then Britain will have a British trade deal. The European Union, let's, when I did that report for the mayor three years ago, the thing I changed my mind on was this whole idea of trade. If you asked me three years ago, I said, would have said because the European Union was huge, it must be beneficial for us in terms of trade. When I spoke to so many different businesses, the pushback was immense. It varied, of course, by size of firm, sector they were in, their business model. But the point was that the European Union, 
basically doesn't do trade deals very well. Britain is only one of 28 countries. Often our demands at the back of the list. Our service sector tends to be not really top of the agenda. So basically we would be doing well better off ourselves outside. And the gentleman's point about the global approach. Clearly we can have a global approach within the European Union, but I think we can have a better global approach outside. And the EU is about 45% of our trade. Ten years' time, it's probably going to be 30% even if we stay in. So I do think it's a case of thinking globally alongside the EU. It's being friendly with the EU, but very much thinking globally. Um, I'm going to address the, the lady up there on the, um, how democratic the European Council and the Commission are. Um, the answer is, of course, not very. Um, but, I mean, the, the, the start with the, the Commission is, is basically a quango, as we know it, you know, sort of a, it's appointed, um, but basically by, by the leaders. So you could kind of compare it maybe to Howard Davis's sort of airports commission, but that's actually the European Civil Service, which is, well, even more than that, it's the executive, which is in, in control of European policy. Um, now, on the European Council, I mean, as Hugo said, it is, it's basically the ministers on, on different subjects or the, the prime ministers, whatever, and they go in and they have a meeting. Now, I don't know about how many of you sit in meetings. I sit in quite a few, or I used to. And the more people you have in a meeting, the more difficult it is to make good decisions. Now, just think, the EU has 28 members. I mean, how on earth can you make good decisions with 28 people in the room? I mean, what's going to happen? You're, you're lucky if everyone's going to get to have a say. So what happens in those sorts of circumstances is decision-making kind of gets leveled down to a kind of a general consensus, which, you know, nobody really opposes, but nobody necessarily really agrees with. Um, so, I mean, you could say in a way it's, it's democratic, but I think it all gets lost in that. Um, the, the relationship between people actually voting and decisions getting made is, is for me, it's, it's completely blasted out by that. Hmm. I think we've got time for one final question. Has anyone got a very brief question? Gentleman over there. Please do make it as concise as possible. Um, I'll keep it as quick as possible. Um, a question for Mr. Lyons. I'm about 80% in favour of um, sure that I'm going to vote out, but the thing that's really bugging me is, is the Grayling question, where he says that old oh, German and French people, um, manufacturers would force them to give us a good deal, when actually it's, if it's a political union, the, political, the politics is going to overrule the economics, so therefore they're going to do the most they can to hurt us. So my question is, what, is the, what are the WTO minimum tariffs? That, and do you happen to know what, what is the worst case we could have, given they're going to do their best they can to hurt us as much as they can, because of, they're going to, there's going to be acrimonious divorce? That's my question. Okay. Well, the, okay. First, in terms of if we were to leave, um, what we then, obviously, in the UK, there will be some political upset, and then we have to have our negotiating strategy, and then we would invoke, if we wanted to, Article 50. So that will take some time. The European Union, they may throw their toys out the pram, but until Britain invokes Article 50, um, then I think it's the Commission, Ken Clark was saying this the other day, it's the Commission that basically decides. So there is a process, and that two-year process kicks in if and when we want to invoke Article 50, and I think that will depend on the outcome of the election or the referendum and the politics of the day. In terms of the WTO, 
According to the World Bank, quote, the tariff rate, comma, applied, comma, weighted mean, comma, all products in EU was 1.04% in 2013. I've seen sources quote 2 to 4%. Um, in terms of agriculture, because agriculture is a protected area, we suddenly, and the trade models never take this on to, into account, we would suddenly benefit from a sharp fall in agricultural prices. The farmers that Boris was referred to, he was making the point at that time that of the money we saved from the EU, and Ben touched on this, we would, in the first two years, nothing happens. We would use that money to... Um, make sure anyone who was dependent on our money being spent by the EU, science community farmers, would be effectively subsidised for a few years until we decided what to do. But in terms of the tariffs, the auto sector would be the one that's hit hardest. I think the tariffs are 5 to 10%, but then half our auto sector basically goes to the rest of the world. Um, so for some, you could argue they would have already benefited from a sturdy depreciation, but the tariff rates of 1% to 4%, you could argue, are a business cost. And I think it's a cost to be put alongside the fact that the currency markets fluctuate widely each year. Um, so there are some sectors that will really benefit. I think the UK consumer will benefit from lower prices, particularly of agricultural goods. Thank you. You go. Yeah, can I, I just want to make a point... <clears throat> It, Gerard is right about the 1% um, tariff, but tariffs are a largely outside agriculture and automotive, a red herring. Um, mod Modern-day barriers to trade are not about tariffs. They're what are called non-tariff barriers. They're rules and regulations, and particularly in the city, the financial industry, which is a tenth of the entire economy, um, it gets what's known as a passport which allows it to operate across the EU. There are, if we left, we would probably not get a passport. That means that we just wouldn't be allowed to offer financial services in the EU out of London. That is a non-tariff barrier. Can and non-tariff barriers... No, you this spoke for quite a long time, no, well, you've Gerard. You've actually said something that's factually... You said something that's wrong. You spoke for a very long time, and you should let me finish my but point. You spoke for wrong. a very long time. Please shut up. Well, say, no, say the truth. <laughs> the second thing to know is that in, in terms of WTO, the WTO basically does a fairly reasonable job about manufactured goods. It does almost nothing for services. So if you are the Germans or the French or the Italians and you want to rely on the WTO without a deal with Britain to send goods to the UK, you can pretty much do that. If you want, as Britain, to send services to the EU and you have to rely on the WTO, you are going to be in an extremely bad situation. The idea that they need us more than we need them, is a myth. 13% of our income is, depends on exports to the EU. Only 3% of their income depends on exports to us. We are the ones who would be desperate to do a deal, not them. Okay, alas, we have run out of time, so I'd like to see, see where, the, where we've reached. Um, so let's go back to the original motion, which was, this House believes we should leave the European Union. If you are in favour of this, please raise your hands now.
And if you are against this, raise your hands now. Okay, so an overwhelming majority then for um, denying the motion that the House believes we should leave the European Union. Thanks very much for coming.